Equity is brought to you by ExaCrunch, that prodigious TechCrunch paywall you keep running into. You can break through that paywall at a steep discount if you use the promo code EQUITY. If you do, you'll get access to our best stuff and you'll make Equity look really good internally at the same time. Enough of that, let's start the show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I'm Danny Crichton and joining me today is Natasha Moscarenas, TechCrunch's, well, I guess it says managing editor. Uh, surprise, you've been promoted because we didn't upgrade the script and apparently <laughs> I've been replaced by you. Uh, how are you doing, Natasha? I'm doing fantastic, Danny. It's my last two weeks in New Jersey. So it is bittersweet, but I'm happy to be returning to the West Coast. I don't think anyone's ever said bittersweet about leaving <laughs> New Jersey, but nonetheless, your family's there. So I can imagine it's always it's a little bit bittersweet. And and this week, Alex Wilhelm is not with us because he is on a well-deserved vacation. So it is just Natasha and I riffing on all the news. And there was a lot of news this week. We had Andreessen launching Future, its blog, and we're going to get into how exciting a new blog is this week. We had <laughs> Harry Stebbings raising a huge amount of money for 20VC. Comsor acquiring Meetsy, a bunch of edtech fundraisers, including stuff about books, uh, Augusto acquisition, funding rounds from Claire Carbine and Neo4j, and finally, HBCUVC, a new fund launch. But before we even begin, we had breaking news before the podcast started. We learned that Wise, which was formerly TransferWise, is planning to go public on the London Stock Exchange in a direct listing, which would be the first direct listing in the UK for a startup. Natasha, what did you think when you heard of this news? It's it's huge. I mean, the fact that it's the first one ever to do a direct listing for the London Stock Exchange is alone interesting. But, you know, Wise is a pretty mature company. CNBC wrote that after being founded in 2010, Wise has grown to 10 million customers. They use their transfer service to send around $7 billion each month, even in the world of Western Union and MoneyGram. So I think it's a big win for the UK, and it's huge for the fintech world as well. Absolutely. And uh, according to some of the valuations we've heard, obviously, we don't know what the price is yet, but it'll be between six and seven billion, according to some folks. That's sort of the target range. We'll obviously have more. I mean, it was just a filing earlier today, but that's a huge fintech round. And obviously, with a bunch of neobanks coming up in Europe, companies like Monzo, N26, a whole bunch of others, Wise is sort of the first to go through and uh, a super exciting one. But Let's move on to the story that, you know, I, I, I would love to have the magic of how to make posting a new WordPress to the internet the talk of the hour, because I have never seen anything like this week's announcement that Andreessen Horowitz is launching a new publication called Future. It's funny. I feel like it used to be every VC had a podcast and now it's every VC has a blog that it will loosely define so that people start getting annoyed, bite the poisonous apple and say that this isn't news. And obviously I've been subject to it, but with Future, I'm actually pretty, I mean, excited to see where it goes. They launched it and they're, they're looking at it as under this broad theme of quote unquote, rational optimism, which they think is lacking in tech coverage. It's not going to be a news operation, but it's going to be combining both A16Z's expertise on certain subjects like crypto and, and fintech with portfolio and non-portfolio companies kind of leading the content. And so I think that it will be interesting to see what they end up, I guess, diversifying into if it's not going to be news. I, I imagine it's going to be a lot of thought pieces, how-tos, 
and and broad you know future of takes fittingly absolutely and i i think there's a couple of interesting points here one is the publication's leadership is actually all all women so margaret wedemachers who's longtime comms head and recent from the beginning and was formerly an outcast the editor-in-chief will be sonal chokchi executive editor maggie lung and managing editor amelia saliers so i mean in some ways a statement i think from the company and the firm on exactly the gender divide in the tech coverage press. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't noticed that, but I think that's massive and and so rare. The other bit that I want to call out about future is that it's not going to have to rely on traditional metrics of success that publications even like TechCrunch have to look at because it'll be funded through Andreessen Horowitz. And so I think that could also be something to pay attention to as they grow. I mean, they're going to be paying attention to metrics like time on page and whether people are finishing the article. But I think in the piece that Panzer posted, they're also going to look at if they're top of conversation and if they can continue to be top of conversation beyond the, the splash of the announcement. Because I think the splash of the announcement brought the usual hot takes. But like, let's actually see if people are linking to future in their newsletters on Twitter on a you know regular basis. Well, and amazingly, they actually did buy the domain, so it'll be at future.com. So congratulations to them. If you go there and try to get an RSS feed, you can't because they don't have an RSS feed. So good luck trying to actually keep track of the content. But nonetheless, there were a million hot takes. And one of the things I think is fascinating here is I don't know why Andreessen has become this lightning rod. This is content marketing. Many firms have done this for many years. (laughs) Uh, You know, a decade ago, it was individual bloggers, folks like Brad Feld, you know, uh, both sides of the table, Fred Wilson. But then, you know, you had firms like First Round who created the First Round Review. You had some other VC firms that built out kind of uh, larger publication style pieces. I don't know why this gets so much coverage. To me, it was just overwhelming the, the dozens and dozens of tweets, everyone analyzing, cross-analyzing. <laughs> they hosted a big clubhouse. <laughs> and I got to be honest, it's blog. <laughs> it's, it's like 2004. I mean, I, I'm excited for it. I actually have very little negativity about it, but it seems to me like it doesn't deserve this level of of saturation coverage. I feel like our new job needs to be just whispering, it's a blog, it's a blog, throughout all the conversations. It's a blog. But I will add, I think the only argument I can make for why this has been somewhat controversial is around the idea that if Andreessen Horowitz stops talking to journalists altogether and takes an anti-media lens, which it hasn't fully yet, but there are, you know, specific... I mean, obviously they talk to us for their story, so I don't think they're not talking to the media. But if they stop talking to me about their investment and only comment through their blog, it's going to create a feedback loop that will, of course, even though they're not trying to threaten journalism, if they're not talking to journalists, that's not a great thing. I I think that's exactly right. But clearly, VC and media are getting more and more intertwined because in one of the major stories I saw this week, Harry Stebbings, who, you know, when he was 18, started a podcast, 20 Minute VC, interviewing VCs one by one in what was, uh, I, I think we generally would call it a softball interview you know, and really met hundreds of people across the industry on his podcast over the years, announced the second fund of 20VC, a $140 million single GP solo fund. And that's going to be set up in a two-fund structure, $33 million for early stage and $107 million for, for growth stage, with LPs like MIT. So actual major institutional LPs. What a story. 24 years old. FT coverage. It's I, I, I'm like living the dream. <laughs> It's it's pretty insane. I mean, especially when you think about what he did last year, which was launch his inaugural fund. And that was 8.3 million 
a micro fund. Still impressive. Still, you know, we wrote a feature about that. But this fund is a 15x increase. And I think kind of shuts up a lot of people who look at emerging fund managers right now and micro funds and say, sure, they can get to 10 million. But can they ever get to like 50 million, let alone 140 million like we saw today? And so Stebbings obviously has a huge vote of validation on his Rolodex. I mean, his podcast was the first podcast I ever listened to when I was trying to understand who's important in this world. And I think that's true for so many people. So having that kind of, I guess, pulse obviously has led him into deals like Hoppin and Clubhouse. I, I, I can imagine him taking that same access into even more competitive deals. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the, the step up here, 15x increase in the fund size is incredible to me. And what's interesting is, you know, I, I help a lot of friends strategize on VC fundraising and, and how they go about doing it. And there's sort of two avenues. You, you raise a very, very small fund, either a rolling fund or just a very, very small seed fund just to get going, right. get in the game, start investing checks, Track and record. you're not really ownership specific or whatever the case may be. Or you try to go for the $50 million kind of debut fund with two partners. And we've seen a bunch of those. They tend to be a very long fundraise cycle, I would say anywhere from 18 to 36 months, so a year and a half to three years. But then you have this kind of institutional base and you have some stability for a couple of years. I've never seen anyone go from an $8.3 million fund to a $140 million fund. I'm thinking of some solar GP funds that I'm familiar with, and it's not uncommon for them to go from like 20 to 40 to 70, something on that sort of path, because ultimately you can't scale yourself and it's just harder and harder to get access. And so what I think is interesting about this structure is it seems like he has access at the early stage and then he's getting this access at growth, 107 million at the growth stage. And so he's just going to get allocation. And, and part of the argument here is that that is because of the marketing potential for 20 Minute VC, the podcast. 200,000 subscribers, 80 million downloads to date, according to some numbers they shared. You know, if you're a Series B company, why not throw a half million, a million dollars into the 20 VC fund and show up on the pod? Someone tweeted this week. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name, but I'll link it in the show notes if I remember it. They said this week, officially a venture capital firm turned into a media operation and a media operation turned into a venture <laughs> capital fund. And I was like, that is actually it. In one sentence, we can end the story here because we're really seeing the blending happen like very dramatically. And so if there's been any questions on if media is enough of a background to enter venture, it is no longer too much of a question, at least if you're Harry Stebbings. Let's be clear. You know, there was some news for this week from OnlyFans. So I'm looking forward to the first OnlyFans VC club uh, because <laughs> I will tie the knot. But talking about community and people voyeuristically looking into other folks, we had a, another startup that was building out community tools this week that Natasha, you covered for us. Yeah, Comsor, which we talked about before, they had raised a 16 million Series A led by 776 and one other fund few months ago. And and they have this really interesting story where they met their first institutional investor on Lunch Club, which is one of those super connector apps. And and this week they announced that they've acquired one of those super connector apps. It's called Meetsy. And it's all about spontaneous networking within communities. So it would take everyone in our extra crunch subscriber world and help them meet each other one evening and kind of connect them based on location or interests or, you know, specifically try to match them with people who had different interests in them to promote diversity. So they acquired Meetsy for an undisclosed sum. And, and to me, I thought it was interesting because it was one, a bet on still virtual interactions remaining king, but the idea of dumb networking going away and how do we make networking more like curated? I don't know. Have you ever been on one of these speed dating 
professional networking ups? I've been on a couple. And, um, you know, they call it smart networking, which I think is an oxymoron. (laughs) Um, Networking is dumb, period. You can't just put smart in front of it and undumbify it. Says the journalist. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I will say, you know, there have been a huge number of these because, let's be clear, LinkedIn sucks. LinkedIn is one of the worst networking tools you could possibly have. It's also extraordinarily expensive on top of the fact that it is a pile of garbage. And so uh, there's a huge, I think, just sucking sound from the market that's saying, like, how do we meet people? How do I find people in the industry, particularly outside of my current company, in my profession, whatever the case may be? And so, you know, Lunch Club was last valued at 100 million. We had Work Vivo, which raised 16 million. Gather Round raised 3.5 million seed last month. Now you have this Meetsy Comsor tie up. And there are others in this space. And so I, I think that there's definitely a lot of folks poking at, you know, the bandwagon, even Clubhouse you know, arguably falls into this category, given that a lot of the, the, the clubhouse rooms are focused on professional development. But I don't think anyone's nailed it yet. And, and I got to be honest, like I've gone into a bunch of these meets on a couple of different platforms. Lukewarm. I mean, it's, it's hard, right? It's, it's very holistic and organic how you meet people. And just because I work at a place and do product and you work at a place and you do product doesn't mean I have any interest in actually talking to you. <laughs> Like, honestly, and drop the mic. I right generally there. don't have any interest in talking to anyone ever. <laughs> so that may be my, that may be 100% my problem. <laughs> I do think, you know, one other company upstream that is trying to do professional networking as well has been focusing a lot on in person events, kind of just jumping into it really intensely as the world starts to open up and vaccinations are a reality for, for the lucky of us. And I, I guess to me, and maybe this is me just being outdated is I'm just ready to meet like the old days and go to a VC dinner. Like I will happily go to the battery when I'm back in San Francisco and <laughs> spend spend a few. You will happily go to the battery. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that. I just, I miss networking in person. It's easier and it's less like we're going to be on a video camera and be proper about it. We can just like chill. It's not a big deal. You know? I, I have been invited to a couple of VC dinners last week and this week, and Did you um, go? I'm still using the I can't find a vaccination oh, no. uh, excuse in New York City, which, <laughs> which is pretty unbelievable <laughs> at this point in New York City. Uh, they, they actually have a, a you can get vaccinated in the subway, which which <laughs> like um, jabbing you. is convenient. But one really asks what's going on there. But uh, <laughs> there's not just community in professional development, because if you're more intellectual and actually like thinking about ideas, Professional networking sucks, but book networking is a lot more fun. <laughs> this is a Danny Crichton startup. Week, this is a, this is, I'm so, there, there, you can see the piles of books behind me. This is actually one of the few stories. People are investing in books. Who would have thought in 2021 that you could actually raise a 20 million Series A for a book club, literally called Book Club. Natasha, you, you talked to the founders. What's going on over there? Yeah, so Book Club is launched by the same person, David Blake, who co-founded Degreed and Learnin. So this is a serial edtech entrepreneur now setting his sights on what he has described as much more fun than Degreed in some ways. I'm slightly paraphrasing. And he wants to do a... <laughs> if you work at Degreed, I really apologize. Uh, your founder's <laughs> like, that's a boring company. I'm now doing something really fun compared to that. He was like, this feels joyful. Degreed felt very satisfying. This feels joyful. <laughs> And I was like, I appreciate you saying this because the whole gist of book club is it's a masterclass meets Goodreads. They got investments in the 20 million series a from a co-founder from masterclass and a co-founder from Goodreads. So on the nose there, and it wants to create a way for people to read a book alongside their favorite authors and either get their biggest questions answered in a live way, but mostly in an asynchronous way that you can click along with these videos about cliffhangers, the writing process, character development. It's it's honestly for bookworms who are willing to invest on a consistent basis in asking their favorite authors like those questions that haunt them. And 
it's a huge bet on readers being that engaged and and wanting so much more from the current way things are read. There's a couple of thoughts I have here. One is Goodreads, while uh, a long standing, you know, entrant in the book space has been underinvested by Amazon for a decade plus. And, and there have been some great blog posts, if you haven't read them, about all the flaws in Goodreads and how little is actually being invested in the product. So there's a huge open space here. Yeah. We've seen some other companies in the space that are focused on summarization. So Blinkist, which is out in Berlin, has raised a bunch of money doing 15 minute audio summaries of business books and self-help literature, whatever the case may be. What I think is interesting is you have this masterclass mentality. So they're looking to actually produce six to eight hours of videos per book with the author, both talking about the actual content of the book, the creation of the book, all these different directions. And to me, that's a very, very different experience than we've seen with, say, traditional book clubs like Oprah's Book Club sure. or, or others. You know, it's, it's a little bit more of a single player experience. So you can actually read the book, watch the videos, learn a lot about the thing you just read. You can also connect potentially with other people, but similar to Masterclass, I don't think that the social networking aspect is as key. So book club is a little bit of a misnomer. It's a book club of one. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's been in beta with thousands of people. It's opening up to the public in July next month. And right now they have about 11 books on the service. They're hoping to get to 200 by the end of the year, which is a massive goal, especially like you said, Danny, considering their production costs. But I do think having that size of a library will be really key to their success because you want to create a place that, I mean, as David explained in my interview with him, like we want to have your whole nightstand, the whole shelf behind Danny covered. So you don't have to just use us once, but you can keep using us. And so I think they're going to have to figure out ways to address non-living authors, authors who maybe are camera shy. There's a lot of like potential ways they're not going to do every single book out there. But if they can find a common thread behind the authors they amplify, I think it could be really cool. We all know how successful Oprah's book club has been. Yes, uh, they're not going to uh, reanimate Charles Dickens uh, for Halloween <laughs> and the, the ghost of authors past will come back and, and haunt us. But I will give a short plug real quick. For one of my favorite book websites, fivebooks.org, oh. five is F-I-V-E, where they do interviews, I believe one or two a week, where they interview a specialist and ask for like the five best books on a subject and talk about how those books interact. And it's a little bit of a different uh, experience because you're comparing different books and how each one comes in. But, you know, what's exciting here is you've covered Book Club. I covered one of these just a couple of months ago. It's a little bit more social network, but like books are in, folks. Book influencers. Um, you heard it here first. Book influencers <laughs> are a thing. It's unbelievable. People are learning. And that leads us to our, our next story, yes. which is, is Formative, uh, a student learning and analytics platform, which sounds boring, but it actually raised a huge amount of money. And our colleague uh, Ingrid London covered it. Natasha, you're in the tech space and I didn't read the story. So what, 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 the, what the F is going on over there? I love the honesty. This is what happens when Alex is not here. We're just unhinged, as you can tell. <laughs> Book influencers and now just not even preparing. Um, formative. Hey, look, a little whiskey in the cereal bowl this morning really makes everything go a lot faster. So formative. Let's talk about them. They raised 70 million led by Summit Partners, Mac Ventures, Rethink and Fika. The best way to think about them is they are trying to build a version and picture of student performance that is not off a classic, learn a lot of material, take a quiz, and then look at the results and assess the student that way. They're trying to reinvent how tests are measured. And so instead of just pulling someone at the end of their learning experience, you pull it throughout and shift even the next day's class material based on what students didn't pick up the day before, which it sounds like it makes a lot of sense because it is rooted in pedagogy, but that's not the way, as I'm sure we all know, most classes are taught, at least in the past. 
And so Formative is is honestly one of the more creative companies I've seen on trying to reinvent how instruction is actually instructed. You know, and this is, I, I think, a part of a long legacy of companies in the Valley that have tried to do this. You had Alt School, backed by, I believe, Andreessen back in the day that was trying to, you know, bring AI and, and a bunch of personalized learning into K through 12. And I think the reality is, is it's really quite human intensive to actually do that when you have a teacher running the classroom. And so I think of formative as like this perfect bridge of adding more customization, personalization into the process without making it so complicated that like literally no teacher can catch up. And obviously the results are in the pudding, so to speak, because 92% of all school districts have at least one teacher signed up. Four million students have engaged with formatives and uh, they've had annual recurring revenue growth of over 700%, which is damn good for EdTech. It's impressive. I mean, they had raised 7 million before now. So 10x their total venture capital raised before. And I mean, yeah, I think it's part of this broader theme that I've been really interested in, which is EdTech that is focusing less on consumption of material. Like how do we make sure students have different ways to access this material to how do we creatively offer that material. It's okay if it's in person and in a traditional way, but like, is there something we can do with what's actually being taught? And so I I hope we see a lot more, but I think we should move on to something I have a great gusto for, which is gusto. (laughs) Danny, tell us the news you broke. I give you a C minus on that one, but uh, (laughs) nonetheless, gusto, the payroll provider, which also offers a bunch of other HR services, made its first acquisition this week. So we found out on Thursday, they're buying Ardius, a software platform that is designed to help startups and small medium businesses acquire tax credits. So if you're familiar with R&D tax credits, that's what keeps Google and Amazon and Microsoft from having to pay any tax. It requires a lot of documentation, but they're actually quite accessible. It's tens of billions of dollars of tax credits offered per year. Small medium businesses usually can't afford to kind of put together the, the data that they need. And that data tends to be payroll. So the idea here is that Gusto, which is a payroll data provider, already has the data ready to go. They're going to match with Ardius. And then you're sort of going to be able to autofill a lot of the information you need around R&D tax credits. Awesome. I mean, I think this is a little bit different than what they had kind of come out the gate of last year, which was they're expanding from just payroll into financial wellness. This feels like a step in a whole nother direction. I mean, during the interview process, when you were thinking about this, did, did it feel like it meshed well with their original vision? Yeah, what's, what's interesting about Gusto is they're, they're expanding on the employer side. So they're offering sure. benefits and insurance, and they're handling a bunch of you know different aspects of HR beyond just payroll. And then they're also offering apps for employees. So that's where this financial wellness comes in. They're offering something they call Gusto Wallet. But for Ardius in particular, what's interesting to me is, is how competitive the space has become. Because Main Street, which we covered last year, or I covered last year, it raised a couple million dollars in a seed, raised $60 million in March, uh, led by Signal Fire to help startups get R&D tax credits and economic development incentives. And then Neo.tax raised $5.5 million last year, which I also covered, also trying to get startups R&D tax credits. So to me, like free money from the government yeah. is hot. That's what people want. Gusto sees an opportunity to kind of vertically integrate that and make it super simple. And, you know, everyone wants more cash flow, including individual people. And that's where the next company comes in, a company called Claire. Claire is trying to improve payday loans. Uh, Natasha, have you ever taken out a payday loan? I've not taken out a payday loan, but I was really honestly impressed with this company. I feel like so much of fintech feels very repetitive. Claire felt really refreshing to read about, not to compliment you too much, but they raised a 15 million (laughs) Series A led by Kareem Zaki of Thrive Capital. And as you just mentioned, I mean, they they focus on payday loans and payday advances and they offer it instantly, which from what I understand from your story, Danny, that's the key is that it's free 
for employees to get these payday advances. Yes. And, you know, I didn't do this in the story because it's a lot of words, but it is slightly different from payday loans. It is an earned wage advance, which is a really technical way to say that they're trying to cover that gap between when you actually do work and your actual payroll gets direct deposited or you get a check and you get it into your bank, right? So if you do work on a Monday and it takes two weeks to process and then another week to get your paycheck, it might take three to four weeks to actually get your money, so to speak, right? And so what, what Claire does is it actually is uh, built into the HR platform, for, very similar to the story of RDS going into Gusto. Yeah. It's using the payroll data. And so it knows you will get paid in two weeks. And so it is willing to say, you know, we know you're going to get money in two weeks. We will actually spot you the money. We'll give it to you for free, interest-free, fee-free, no tips like Dave and some of the other companies, completely free. And how they make money is they're using that to build the direct deposit relationship with employees so that they can offer all the other fun banking services that all these other startups do. So the hope is that the earned wage advance offering is the gateway to offering you the rest of the banking universe. It, it feels like a no-brainer now that I've read this to go into the financial services industry by owning the paycheck versus owning the even direct deposit. I feel like having that sort of like trust with a customer and just building that kind of vocabulary and relationship with them throughout can really like cleanly transfer into other products down the road. And obviously this is an early stage company, but we have seen more and more companies focus on this sort of advance as a way in. There was one question I had about this company when I was reading about it, which is that they pay workforce management and payroll systems to integrate with Claire. What's that all about? The company is offering inducements to HR tech integrators. So, so essentially, if you are offering an HR platform and you integrate with, with Claire, they're basically going to give you an additional revenue line item if you basically offer Claire to your customers. So if you are, for instance, Gusto, which ironically has a competitive product, they actually do their own earned wage advance system as well. You know, but let's assume that they didn't have that. You could theoretically integrate with Claire, and Claire is basically going to circle some of the money back it makes on fees from Interchange and all the other banking services it offers back to the HR platform. So the idea is to just sort of induce, sure. um, make it a win-win for everyone, get more folks on board the platform. It's basically a way to get integrated with the HR platform super fast. And I think it's super smart. Obviously, a lot of companies in the space, Gusto, as I just mentioned, even, which I've covered, I think, four or five times, but they've been doing this for years. Dave, which just announced a SPAC a couple of weeks ago for a $4 billion valuation, also in the space, which is focused on a tipping model. You get a free loan, but you're asked to tip, which is always, I don't know, who tips, models, but apparently yeah. people tip companies. <laughs> don't know why, but they do. They need you know, it. A, a really unique model and, and super interesting. Awesome. Well, let's move on to the disaster tech conversation that we've all been waiting for. It's been about a couple of weeks since our initial Wednesday episode went out about it. But this week we have news about Carbine raising $20 million. Danny, you wrote the story. What does Carbine do and why does it make sense that they raise $20 million? Carbine works with what are known as PSAPs, that's P-S-A-P, or otherwise known as 911 centers in the United States, um, to basically deliver location information. They can also do video to basically give first responders as much information about an emergency as possible. Because if you're sort of able to triage or know exactly what to expect, you can bring the right equipment, um, you can be prepared, and it generally helps outcomes across the board. So they had raised $25 million back in January, which my, our colleague Ingrid London, who Apparently, it's the only person we ever talked about on the show, you know, covered <laughs> back then. They just raised another $20 million in a convertible note led by Global Medical Response. And, and GMR is the leading ambulance, medevac, helicopter, ship, like whatever, you know, alternative way other than just walking into a hospital to get into a patient facility. They're the ones who are probably going to get you there. So they're going to put $20 million in at a valuation of over $100 bucks. 
And because of the convertible note, it actually will go into their Series C round whenever they raise it. So I, I thought it was super interesting because my sense was, they didn't say this, my sense is it's a strategic investor, a little bit slow to the January round, they couldn't commit in time. And so they're just buying into a convertible note. So they're going to get you know money for the next round already locked in. I'm trying to think of like a metaphor to explain how big of a deal it is that global medical response invested in the company. And maybe you'll have a better one. But I feel like to me, that is like, that's it, right? Like the moment you are connected to that sort of partner, your business really has a huge opportunity to grow massively. Because I guess in my head, I was assuming the hardest part for Carbine will be to integrate with medical providers. Like they just seem close to innovation. <laughs> and so <laughs> the fact that they've invested is big. Absolutely. And, and, and critically, I mean, there's a game of telephone when there's a crisis, right? You call 911, right. the 911 call taker hears you, they hear things, they dispatch, they send information along and, and they're supposed to be with you all the way through. Carbide, I don't want to say is, is taking out the 911 call taker. I mean, obviously they're still a part of it, but the idea is to centralize the information, one source of truth. There's no game of telephone where the 911 call taker hears one thing, they're selling the the team in the field something else. It's designed to reduce errors. And um, critically, it's it's doing super well. So Carbine has actually doubled its recurring revenues since the beginning of 2021. Its employee base has expanded 30% this year in the last six months. And, and notably, New Orleans will move all of its emergency centers to Carbine, along with centers in Texas, Georgia, and Florida. So they're getting some big contracts in underway. And finally, last week, they announced the launch of what they're calling the Ultra Emergency Network. It's going to be one of the first emergency networks that allow you to call 911 without cell reception. So they're going to use a variety of other technologies. They're working on partnerships with other firms to basically ensure that you can always dial 911, even in, say, a hurricane disaster zone where all the cell towers are knocked out. I mean, that's just massive and not casual at all. I mean, I love that's one reason why I love this I'm show. I'm like dumping is... it in because we're running out of time. And, <laughs> and it's like super cool. But like, if I just keep talking about super cool things, this show will never end. There's too much super cool stuff. It's not supposed to end ever. We, we go from talking to book clubs to saving true lives. Let's move on to, I think, the headline of the week. Yes, the headline of the week. So Neo4j raised a Neo 325M <laughs> this week, uh, led by Eurasio. I think that's how you say it, Eurasio, in a Series F round. So Neo4j is a graph-based database. So think like a social network. You have people and they have connections between people. Or you're on Twitter and you have followers. You have nodes and you have connections. Neo4j is a database that's designed to natively handle that sort of data and analyze it using really efficient tools. So they announced $325 million. They claim, and I, I think it's true, but it was one of those sort of claims I can't verify, that that is the largest investment in a database company ever at a $2 billion post-valuation. That is actually a larger amount of money than Mongo raised before it IPO'd. It's actually about the same amount of money. The 325 is about the same amount of money that CockroachDB has raised. Okay, flex. Um, so it's actually a pretty notable, huge round. Neo4j was founded back in 2007. You know, they've now raised, I believe, a total of 500 million and change over the last 15 years. So huge deal, 800 enterprise customers, 75% of the Fortune 100. And uh, they announced at the developers conference today that they had the first 200 billion node trillion connection database in which they were able to do real-time query processing on it. So they're very excited about the scale of what's going on here. I don't know. Like, uh, is, is graph-based data analysis something that you think about often, Natasha? I think about it all the time, actually. Thank you for finally bringing it up on the show. I was feeling I, I, unheard. <laughs> <laughs> well, ironically, we talk about community on the show all the time. And that's where Neo4j does super well. So, you know, the CEO, Emil Ephraim, who I talked to earlier this week, really emphasized that a lot of enterprises are moving from relational databases in SQL into graph-based models for data analysis. So he, he pointed out in supply chains where we had the Suez Canal crisis, 
you want to analyze what are your products are going to be effed up because these ships are sort of blocked in Egypt. Graph-based allows you to do it super fast. Uh, marketers are using it to connect data points between customers and figure out which influencers are going to affect your purchase decision. You go on down the list, a lot of graph data is going out there, and there's just more and more tools to use it effectively. So super interesting round, our blockbuster price today. But one more piece of great news, Juneteenth, which is celebrated tomorrow and will officially be, I think, a federal holiday once President Biden signs off on it. We have some great news from that wing as well, Natasha. Yeah, it was it was a huge, huge week in this world. I mean, HBCUVC, which is a nonprofit that wants to diversify the world of venture capital, and it partners with students at HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities to help them break into venture. They announced that they've raised a million dollar fund dubbed the Venture Capital Lab Fund and will be investing non-dilutive capital in black, indigenous and Latinx early stage entrepreneurs. It's interesting for two reasons. One is that it is going to use its existent fellows. So the same students it tries to help break into venture. Those are going to be the students that are going to invest in these companies on behalf of this capital arm. So it's going to give these people a track record, which is everything, as we've talked about in the beginning of the show. Second, HBCUVC, I mean, wouldn't have been here if not for a, a huge spur of donations in the wake of George Floyd's murder. I mean, they almost shut down a week before that happened. And so I think HBCUVC has reckoned with that, has has talked talked to me in the story a lot about how knee-jerk reactions aren't positive for the ecosystem, but they did spin a lot of the donations they got as a result of that and continue to get into something I think super great and has a chance to really change, hopefully, what venture looks like. What I love about this is when we talk about like seed investing, when I think of seeds, it's, it's planting seeds and letting them grow into, you know, large oaks. And, and you know, with George Floyd's murder anniversary was just a, a few weeks ago, the one year anniversary, to see so much change, I, I think it really did reshape a lot of perceptions in the Valley. A lot of folks are doubling down. And, and to me, with, with 230 venture fellows coming through here, building up check writing experience, you know, this this is the first step. Now, it will take time, obviously. You know, you first get checks and then you have to invest them. You have to grow them. You have to build out track records. But to me, like the complete spraying and, and getting as many people involved in the funnel at the top as possible means that more and more people will make it through that pipeline as things go on. And that's super exciting. 100%. I, it's always hard to try and measure diversity on a year by year basis because it should be something that's ever happening. And Hopefully it looks a lot different 10 years from now versus one year from now. But yeah, to your point, Danny, already seeing it happen is great. And we will be hopefully seeing a lot of numbers change on the access to funding for founders as well. But I think that is the show. This was awesome. Thanks, Danny. That is our show. And we are off. Well, this show is getting published, but we have Juneteenth off at TechCrunch on Friday. So we are going to take a day to reflect on our political situation. Hopefully you do all the same. We'll be back next week. Alex will be back and we will have our live show on June 24th, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Come for an hour of fun and ah. excitement because nothing's <laughs> going to be edited. It's unedited. It's unfiltered. It's full of dad jokes galore. Join us. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Bye.